Stay hungry, stay foolish. Why are we obsessed with the things we want only to get bored when we get them? Why is addiction perfectly logical to an addict? Why does love change so quickly from passion to indifference? Why are some people die-hard liberals and other hardcore conservatives? Why are we always hopeful for solutions even in the darkest times? The answer is found in a single chemical in your brain, dopamine. Dopamine ensured the survival of early man. Thousands of years later, it is the source of our most basic behaviors and cultural ideas and progress itself. Dopamine is the source of our every urge, that little bit of biology that makes an ambitious business professional sacrifice everything in pursuit of success, or that drives a satisfied spouse to risk it all for the thrill of somebody new. Simply put, it is why we seek and succeed. It is why we discover and prosper. Yet, at the same time, it is why we gamble and squander. From dopamine's perspective, it's not having that matters, it's getting something, anything, that's new. From this understanding, the difference between possessing something versus anticipating it, we can understand in a revolutionary new way why we behave as we do in love, business, addiction, politics, religion, and we can even predict those behaviours in ourselves and in others. We welcome the author of The Molecule of More, how a single chemical in your brain drives love, sex and creativity and will determine the fate of the human race. Daniel Z. Lieberman, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and I, I thought a great way to start is the up versus down idea contextualized by the line you use in the book, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think that that really sets the stage for a rather revolutionary way of understanding the brain. And that is that it divides the world between up and down, heaven and earth. And let me explain what that means. We think about space in two ways. One part of space is that which is within arm's reach. Anything within arm's reach we call in the peripersonal zone. And that's typically stuff that we own, we control, we enjoy, sometimes we consume it. It's your clothing, it's your cell phone, it's the hamburger that you're eating. These are all things that you have right here, right now. Now, that's what you see when you look down. When you look up, on the other hand, you're looking out into the extrapersonal space. That is space that is beyond your arm's reach. And that contains things that you don't have. And if you need it, you need to go out and get it. It's going to take work, effort, desire, maybe planning. And when you do get it, it's going to happen in the future. So the concept of up is associated with things that are far away, require effort and planning to get, and will happen in the future. Now, you want to ask yourself, why is it that the brain divides the world into up and down, into the peripersonal and the extrapersonal? And it's really quite simple. And that is that to our evolutionary ancestors, the common saying, if you have it or you don't, could very easily become either you have it or you're dead. From a survival point of view, there is a fundamental difference between resources which you have and resources which you don't. And the brain evolved to deal with that reality. 
And we're going to go much, much deeper into a lot of the concepts you discussed there. But before we deep dive into the effects of dopamine, I thought it'd be useful to give a quick history of the discovery, which wasn't so long ago, and how initially dopamine was seen as simply a way for the body to produce a chemical called norepinephrine. But then scientists began to observe strange things. Yes, that's right. Norepinephrine is a brain chemical. Sometimes we call them neurotransmitters, like dopamine. People are familiar with some of these neurotransmitters like serotonin, endorphin, endocannabinoid. Originally, it was thought that dopamine's only role was as a precursor chemical to norepinephrine, which is probably best thought of as the fight-or-flight neurotransmitter, sort of the brain's version of adrenaline. But then they began to realize that this chemical actually influences a very wide variety of behaviors. And its influence is so potent that oftentimes it can overcome our volition, our free will. Now, they saw that drugs of abuse seem to activate dopamine more than any other experience does. And following up that line of thought, the idea of dopamine came to be associated with the pleasure chemical. And the pathways that dopamine take through the brain were known as the reward circuit. And a lot of people are familiar with dopamine in that context as the reward chemical or the pleasure chemical. But it turns out that's actually not correct. It turns out that it's a little bit more complex and a lot more powerful because dopamine isn't really about the pleasure of enjoying things. Dopamine is about the pleasure of anticipating things, anticipating things that you don't have now. And that's why we called the book The Molecule of More, because dopamine can never be satisfied. And in fact, stimulating dopamine, giving it that hope of something new, of something more, actually produces more of it such that you are even less satisfied than you started out before patient of mine who was struggling with cocaine addiction told me that when he snorted a line of cocaine, he felt like a new man. And the first thing that new man wanted was another line of cocaine. Before we get into drugs, because you talk about addiction deeply and the whole chapter is dedicated to that, and that would be really helpful for people to understand. But let's start the way you do in the book and talk about love. And I mentioned this in the intro that it often feels like it fades for people. And this is because of dopamine. And I thought we'd explore the initial highs, the initial obsession and the elation. But here you talk about experimentation with monkeys and rats and Wolfram Schultz. Yes. So just as the brain divides the world into two spaces, up and down, the peripersonal and extrapersonal, we can divide love into two phases. The first phase is passionate love. And that phase is being driven by dopamine. Hopefully, most of us knows what that feels like. It may be the most wonderful experience that most human beings have. We feel like we are reborn. We feel like the world is full of sparkly pixie dust and that everything has changed and will never be the same. And it's about the future. It's about a better world, a better life with our beloved. It's about more. All we want to do is spend more and more time with this amazing person we've fallen in love with. It's about anticipation, excitement, creativity, all kinds of wonderful, wonderful things. The problem is, though, that 
every dopaminergic pleasure we experience is time limited. And the reason is that eventually the future becomes the present. Eventually up becomes down. And so we get to the point where we're no longer anticipating our new life with this amazing person that we found. We're living our life with this amazing person. And at that point, dopamine turns off and other neurochemicals are poised to take over. The neurochemicals that are down, they're about what we have, not what we want. And these are things like oxytocin, endocannabinoid, endorphin. And they lead us into the second phase of love, and that's called companionate love. Companionate love doesn't have the life-changing excitement of passionate love, but it can also be a very wonderful thing. Rather than being exciting, anticipatory, feeling like we're in a brand new world, it's deeply satisfying. It leads to a state of contentment. There is something truly wonderful about having another person's life deeply entwined with your own. But you've got to look out for the change. The passionate phase of love lasts 12 to 18 months. And when it goes away, a lot of people develop the feeling that they're no longer in love. And for many people, especially people who tend to organize their lives around generating dopamine stimulation, they think the relationship is over and they bring it to a halt. But it's not. It's just entering a new phase, a more enduring phase, perhaps a more mature phase, and a phase that has the potential to give us happiness and fulfillment for a much longer period of time than dopamine is able to do. So one of the ways that we moved from the idea of dopamine being a pleasure molecule to dopamine being an anticipatory future-oriented molecule was with a man named Wolfram Schultz doing experiments with monkeys. Here's what he did. He took some monkeys and he put two boxes in front of them. One box contained a grape and it was randomly put in. They would never know which one it was. And when they opened the box that contained the grape, not surprisingly, they got a little burst of dopamine. Now, the next thing he did was he had two lights and the lights would signal which box the grape was in. But in the beginning, the monkeys didn't know what the code was. So one of the lights would go off and the monkeys would randomly open a box. Sometimes they'd get it right, sometimes they wouldn't. When they got it right, they got their dopamine surge. Now, eventually they figured out the signal so that every time the light came on, they reached for the correct box. And when that happened, they no longer got a dopamine surge when they opened the box. They got the dopamine surge when the light went off. And the reason is that dopamine responds to the unexpected. It responds to the opportunity for more reward, more resources. And that was the light. Once the light came on, the possibility of a grape became the reality of the grape. They knew exactly where it was. And when they opened the box and reached for the grape, there was no surprise. The technical term for it is reward prediction error. We get dopamine when we make a prediction about the kind of reward that's in our future, and it turns out we're wrong. The reward is greater than we expected. 
So Monkey's sitting around. All of a sudden, the light goes off. Monkey didn't expect that light to go off. That's a reward prediction error. But when he opens up the box, he is already predicting there's going to be a grape in there. And so when he finds the grape, the reward prediction error is zero, and there's no more dopamine. So it's not about the pleasure of gratification. It's about the possibility of getting something more, something unexpected. Yeah, and this teases up for so many addictions, so many ways we think where we're always looking for more and more. But there's a piece I found phenomenal where you talked about how couples have sex less frequently as obsessive dopaminergic love evolves into compassionate H&N love, as you call it. This makes sense since oxytocin and vasopressin suppress the release of testosterone. And in a similar way, testosterone suppresses the release of oxytocin and vasopressin, which helps explain why men with naturally high quantities of testosterone in their blood are less likely to marry. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it's kind of a deep dive into the hormones of reproduction and marriage. Oxytocin is a key chemical in terms of us making deep, long-lasting bonds with another person. You know, it's funny. We learned a lot about oxytocin from studying prairie voles. These are adorable little animals that come in basically two kinds. One kind has oxytocin, and these prairie voles mate for life. The other kind doesn't, and they're promiscuous. They will reproduce with whatever partner is available. And what scientists found out was that if they took the promiscuous prairie voles and injected them with oxytocin, they resisted the temptation to mate with other available partners and stuck with one, just like the ones who were born with high levels of oxytocin. So testosterone is the opposite. Testosterone is the hormone of what we might call indiscriminate sexual desire. And that's true in both men and women. Women produce testosterone to drive their sexual desire. And when it's high, they're interested in having sex, period. Not necessarily with any specific partner. Obviously, that's not great within a committed relationship. And so you kind of get this oppositional tug of war between the two of them. Testosterone suppresses oxytocin in order to encourage promiscuous behavior, and oxytocin suppresses testosterone in order to encourage fidelity to a single mate. And I thought it was fascinating to bring this a little bit further, is how we react to orgasm. And studies show that with few exceptions, the brain's response to orgasm was the same. Dopamine was turned off and H&N was turned on. So if you're highly dopaminergic, the most important part of sex probably occurs prior to the main event. It's in the conquest it's the thrill of the chase. And you say here, when an imagined object of desire turns into a real person, when hope is replaced with possession, the role of dopamine comes to an end. Yeah, you know, I treated a patient once who had a problem that's not at all uncommon, and that is that he had lots of one-night stands, but he couldn't establish a long-term relationship. And he knew that was a problem. He knew that that was interfering with his ability to have a happy, satisfying life. So he came to me to see if there's anything he could do about it. The problem was that he would see a woman he was attracted to. He would pursue her. He would get her to agree to have sex. He'd have sex with her, and then he would completely lose interest in her. And that was a problem with his dopamine 
interaction with his, his here and now neurotransmitters. All he wanted was the dopaminergic thrill. As soon as he possessed her in the beginning by having sex with her, dopamine turned off because she was no longer a possibility, she was a reality. And dopamine doesn't respond to reality, only to possibility. Now, it's interesting. So it started out that, that he wanted to seduce these women. He wanted to take them home and have sex with them. But really, that's not what his dopamine wanted. His dopamine was excited about the possibility. So eventually, once he got them into his apartment, the conquest was complete, and he no longer wanted to have sex with them. And then it pulled back again. Once they agreed to go home with them, the possibility was complete, and at that point, he would lose his sexual desire. So it got to the point where he was struggling with impotence because he was no longer able to become aroused with these women when dopamine was no longer involved. It's addiction. As you tell us in the book, these are all addictions and the same with pornography. But let's get into drugs and talk about addiction. And to set this up, you share some biology with the mesolimbic pathway, simply called the dopamine desire circuit. And here you tell us the sensation of wanting is not a choice you make. It is a reaction to the things you encounter. You give an example of many of us will appreciate and you say, it's the desire circuit that's activated when you see a plate of donuts on the table. And it's activated not by need, but by the presence of something attractive from an evolutionary or life sustaining standpoint. That is, at the moment such a thing is seen, the circuit is activated whether you want it or not, whether you're hungry or not. Yes. In the book, we discuss two dopamine pathways in the brain. And as you point out, the first one is the mesolimbic pathway, which we call the dopamine desire pathway. This is the pathway that gives you desire, enthusiasm, energy, perseverance, and those kinds of things. So maybe we can start out by looking at one of the positive functions of this pathway. So imagine how it feels to work on a project that you are excited about and compare that to working on a project that you just have to do, but you really don't care about. So when you're excited, uh, you can't wait to get at it. You're full of energy. Time flies by. It brings out the best in you and it makes you feel excited, motivated. You will work long, long hours. You may even forego things like meals and showers because you're so engrossed with what you're doing. You compare that to doing something just because you have to do it. Let's say writing a report, for example. You're working on it. You will look for any excuse to do something else. Check email, check social media, maybe even clean out your kitchen cupboards because you don't have the dopamine desire pathway pushing you along. So this pathway has the potential to do wonderful things in our lives, but we don't control it. And so it also has the potential to destroy our lives. So if your boss at work tells you, hey, you got to do this project, you have no control over whether it's going to make you excited or bored. If you uh, see a plate of donuts, as you pointed out, you probably know that you should stay away from that plate of donuts, but you have no control over whether or not you want it. That's something that your biology is doing for you simply because that's how evolution wired it to be most successful at essentially staying alive and reproducing. So when our dopamine desire circuit goes off, if it's aligned with our conscious volitional goals, it's going to give us superpowers almost. 
However, if it's opposed to our volitional goals, such as staying healthy and avoiding donuts, it's actually going to diminish our ability to make free choices. It's going to diminish our free will as human beings. And I loved your reframing of buyer's remorse because this is another thing where we're always looking to forward to buy. So if consumerism is based on this, but if we made a wise purchase, it's possible that strong H&N gratification will make up for the loss of the dopamine thrill of getting something new. That's right. And you know, there are a lot of theories about buyer's remorse. If you look it up on Wikipedia, you can see them. One of the things that Mike Long and I, my co-author, are proud of is that we're the first ones to come up with a biochemical explanation for buyer's remorse involving dopamine. And that is that when you are anticipating a purchase, maybe it's a new car, a new TV, a new cell phone, a, a new pair of shoes, dopamine is active. And dopamine is making you excited, enthusiastic. It's whispering in your ear, when you get this, your life is going to be so much better. Once you get it, though, it goes from the future to the present. It goes from up to down, and dopamine no longer processes those things, so it shuts off. And all of a sudden, this thing that was this magical, wonderful thing that was going to change your life it's no longer creating any of those feelings. And that's when buyer's remorse steps in. And you may say, oh my God, why did I spend all this money? I'm not enjoying this nearly as much as I anticipated. And that'll make so much sense for people. But the reason I actually brought that in now when we're talking about addiction is because I live in Ireland and Ireland, whether we like it here or not, is associated with alcohol. And I found it important to share the fascinating onset of action, the faster the rise, you know, so for example, if I drink alcohol really, really quickly, I'll get a hit much, much quicker. And that's actually better than drawing it out over a long period of time because it leads to more craving down the road. Yes, that's right. When you drink alcohol, a lot of different things are going on in your brain. I think the thing we're most familiar with is what we call intoxication. Alcohol is a sedative drug. And when we're intoxicated, we get tired, we become incoordinated, we may stumble, slur our speech, our eyelids may droop. That's one thing that happens, but that's not what's responsible for the pleasure. The pleasure is associated with dopamine release. All addictive drugs, marijuana, cocaine, alcohol, heroin, all of them cause dopamine release. And one of the funny things is that the more rapidly the drug's concentration goes up in your bloodstream, the more intoxicated you become. I first ran across this when I was a medical student. A friend of mine, we were thinking of going out, and she said, hey, let's go out and drink cocktails. I always have so much more fun when I drink cocktails than when I drink beer. And she said, is there a medical reason for that? I was just a medical student. I didn't know very much about dopamine. And so I said, no, you're just imagining it because the active ingredient of both is alcohol, and alcohol is alcohol, and there's no difference. Well, it turns out there is a difference, because mixed drinks, we tend to drink a lot faster, often they're sweet, doing shots, this is gonna make the alcohol level in your brain go up much faster, and it's the rate, not the amount, that triggers dopamine. And so when people start drinking, the rate is very, very rapid going up in their bloodstream. And they will feel not only intoxicated, they'll feel high. They'll become talkative. They'll want to dance on the bar. They'll be full of energy. After a while, it changes. And the rate levels off. 
dopamine goes down and intoxication goes up. And so as people try to recapture that initial energy and pleasure by doing more shots, drinking lots, lots more, and as we all know, that generally ends badly. And here you tell us, for example, cocaine, so it's a popular drug, particularly in times of economic abundance, which we're in at the moment, and you inform us about the difference between crack and regular cocaine in the same context as alcohol. Yes, that's right. One would, you know, crack, of course, is just smoking cocaine. And one would think that since it's the same drug, it should be the same effect. But in fact, uh, crack is much more addictive than powder cocaine. And the reason is how it's getting in your body. When you snort powder cocaine, you're absorbing it through the nasal mucosa. That's the, I guess we might call it like skin inside the nose that's red because there's lots of blood vessels and the cocaine gets into the uh, blood vessels through there. But there's not very much room. There's, there's very little surface area. By contrast, when you smoke crack cocaine, you're using the surface area of your lungs, which is about half the size of a tennis court. And so you get lots and lots of drug in your body very, very rapidly. You get that huge rise that happens very quickly, and you get a lot more dopamine. And that's what leads to the addiction, is the dopamine release. Bringing this even further to prescription drugs, you say they can overstimulate dopamine release, as you tell us, for example, with Parkinson's medication, which involves an uptake in gambling, hypersexuality, and risk-taking. Those are kind of bizarre medications. So Parkinson's disease is an illness in which a part of the brain called the substantia nigra that manufactures dopamine stops working properly. And so doctors need to replace the dopamine because in addition to things like pleasure and anticipation, it's also important for muscle movements. And people with Parkinson's become stiff and they experience a tremor. So we've got to replace the dopamine. Now, the medications used to treat Parkinson's disease don't cause pleasure the way that drugs of abuse do but they do boost dopamine. And um, I can't remember the exact percentage, but I think about one in five or one in six experience the kind of addictive compulsive behaviors you might expect with too much dopamine, such as reckless gambling, addiction to sex, and all of those kinds of things that we can see with too much dopamine. Talking about addiction, it's not obviously just drugs or prescription drugs that we get addicted to and change our behaviors. It's also things like gaming. And you mentioned earlier on reward prediction error. And this is actually built into games. And as you say, and, and I always say on this show as well, it's not like the gaming companies are out there to get people hooked. It's just a side effect of actually playing games. I'd love to have shared your work on this. You know, the whole idea of video games being addictive is controversial. And I think that the reason why it's controversial is because it generally doesn't happen to adults. The human brain is not fully developed until we reach our early 20s. So when young people play video games, they don't have the same level of judgment and the same level of restraint that adults do. Adults looking at this data saying that kids can get addicted to video games say, well, that's, that's nonsense. I've never felt that way about video games. But it does happen with children. And you know, I'm going to disagree with you in terms of the makers of video games not trying to make them addictive, because I think that they do. When we play video games, the makers are 
collecting all kinds of data that we produce. They're looking at our interactions. They're looking at how long we play. They're looking at what's making us stop. And they're constantly tweaking, constantly upgrading, finding ways to make us play longer and longer. Now, they may not be thinking about dopamine, but what they are thinking about is just maximizing the amount of time you spend with their game. Because to them, that translates into dollars and cents. So I think in some ways that they're using this incredibly powerful technology to take advantage of the underdeveloped brains of young people. And I'm not sure it's entirely ethical what they're doing. One of the things you talked about there, because I found this really fascinating, was even stuff like, for example, in a game, you hunt treasure chests. And you said they did little experiments with, we need to put a little reward in every one of them. It was like the reward prediction area earlier. And they changed it due to how people behaved, like you said. Yes, that's right. They did these randomized trials where they allowed people to achieve their goal with five treasure chests, seven treasure chests, nine, 11, 12, to figure out what would make people frustrated and what would make people persevere. So they know exactly the number to keep you hooked. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if currently they're actually individualizing this by player. They're no longer doing it for groups as a whole. They're learning more and more about you and using AI to get you as hooked as possible. You know, in many ways, this is not all that different from what Las Vegas casinos do. It's all about reward prediction error. You open up the treasure chest and it's going to be a surprise, just like pulling the handle on a slot machine or rolling the dice in a game of craps. And recently, the video game companies actually became very much like Las Vegas with loot boxes. So loot box is something you have to pay real money for. It's not just hunting through it in the video game world. You pay real money for it. You open it up and you hope you get what you want, a powerful weapon or some other tool to make you more successful in the game. And kids were spending hundreds, even thousands of dollars of their parents' money because they could not stop buying these loot boxes. And I believe that finally Congress had to step in and pass some regulations limiting these gambling opportunities for young children. One of the last things on gaming is they've also tapped into the H&N chemicals, so oxytocin, for example. So this whole idea of making gaming social is a real dilemma for parents. We talked about it on the show before because you want your kids to socialize and connect with their friends and have something to talk about around the virtual water cooler. But at the same time, you don't want to get them addicted. Yes, that's right. The here and now H&N pleasures are generally safer than the dopaminergic pleasures because they're about contentment and satisfaction. So it's easy to stop. You know, you say, okay, I've had enough. I feel great. Next thing. Things like beauty, which we see in video games. Some of them are very, very beautiful. Socializing, emotions. These are all here and now. And so these are very, very good things. But to the degree that they support the dopaminergic addictions, they can kind of be twisted into something that is perhaps not so very good. Let's talk about some of the solutions because we're not going to just harp on just about the challenges, which there are many. You tell us what kind of circuit in the brain is powerful enough to oppose dopamine. You tell us that dopamine itself is the antidote to dopamine. 
It's one of the antidotes to dopamine. That's right. So we've been talking about the desire circuit. There's another circuit. It's called the mesocortical circuit. Starts in the same place as the desire circuit, but it goes up to the frontal lobes. The frontal lobes are where we are able to use judgment. We're able to think abstractly. We're able to maximize our long-term benefits rather than just our short-term benefits. So we call this circuit in the book the control circuit. So when the desire circuit says, hey, eat that donut, the control circuit can say, well, that may feel good for about 60 seconds, but if we look down the line to next month or next year, it's not going to be helping me. And so the dopamine control circuit says no. But it's important to note that even though the control circuit and the desire circuit can act in opposition to each other, their goal is the same, and that is to maximize future resources. It's just that the control circuit is looking farther in the future, and it's not using primitive craving or impulsivity as the desire circuit does, it's using more sophisticated tools like planning and abstract thinking. And you say the dopamine control circuit is the source of imagination. It lets us peer into the future to see the consequences of decisions we might make right now and thus allows us to choose which future we prefer. Yeah, you know, if we go back to the peripersonal and extrapersonal, when we when something's in our peripersonal space, we can interact with it with all five of our senses. As it moves into the extrapersonal and gets farther and farther away, the sensory modalities drop off one by one. We lose the ability to touch it, to taste it, uh, perhaps to smell it, to hear it, and finally to see it. So when something is so far out in the extrapersonal space that we can't even see or hear it, how do we perceive it? Well, the answer is we perceive it with our imagination. And that's one of the amazing things about the human brain is it can create things that have no real existence. Uh, and that's through imagination. And one of the things it allows us to do is something called mental time travel, to project ourselves into the future, to imagine what various futures might be like and then choose the one that maximizes future resources, making dopamine happy. So the example I gave is, uh, if I want to travel from Washington, D.C. to New York City, I could take the bus, which is very cheap, I could take the train, which is very comfortable, or I could fly, which is very fast. And, and when I'm deciding, I'm going to do mental time travel. I, I'm going to imagine being on the bus and what that will lead to. Same with the train and the airplane. And by vicariously experiencing these different futures, it enables me to make the best choice. Anyone involved in any creative pursuit, a lot of our audience now would be like this, knows we need tenacity to bring that to life. And you devote a whole section of the book to tenacity. And here, dopamine is on hand to deliver. And you share with us here to bring it to life, the case of the resolute rats. Yes, that's right. So one of the important roles of the desire circuit is to keep our noses to the grindstone, so to speak. As any entrepreneur knows, you get a great idea. Great ideas are a dime a dozen. What's really hard is bringing it into reality, into fruition. So they, they wanted to look at the role of dopamine in tenacity. And the way you study tenacity in rats is by giving them a lever-pushing task in return for rewards in the form of food pellets. 
So you got a rat in a cage, it's got a lever, and it's got to push the lever a certain number of times in order to get the reward. If you give the reward with one push, you don't need any tenacity at all. If you raise that to 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, you're going to need more and more tenacity. And the researchers wanted to find out if that would also require large amounts of dopamine. So what they did is, is they took a bunch of rats, divided them into two groups randomly, and used a neurotoxin to destroy the dopamine circuits in one of the rats. And then they gave them this tenacity test. The first thing they did is they gave them a reward with only one push. And what they found was that the lever pressing was the same in both groups of rats. And what that showed them was that the rats that had their dopamine circuits destroyed by the neurotoxin still enjoyed the food pellets. Um, They would press a button in order to get them. It, It showed them that they were pleasurable. When they started increasing the amount of work, however, what they found was was that the intact rats who had normal dopamine circuits would push more and more and more and more, more than one time per second as the requirement went up. Whereas the rats who had had their dopamine destroyed, when the requirement went up, they pushed a little bit more. When it went up even more, maybe a little bit more. When it went up even more, they basically gave up. And we compared these rats to basement-dwelling pot smokers. They're very happy to take whatever pleasure comes along, but they're not going to go out there and chase it down and win it. This brings us to self-efficacy, or that you're more likely to stick with it if you see that you're capable of doing it. Here, I thought of cocaine and amphetamines, and the way people use these, for example, in a lot of professions to boost self-efficacy, and also explains the epidemic of abuse of ADHD meds in the U.S., like Ritalin and Adderall with students, for example. Yes, that's right. A lot of students believe that they perform better when they're using drugs for attention deficit disorder, like Ritalin and Adderall. And there's no question that is absolutely true for people who have a valid diagnosis of attention deficit disorder. But they're not the ones abusing it. It's the people who do not have attention deficit disorder who are abusing it, thinking it's helping them perform better. But studies have shown it's not. What it's doing is it's making it easier for them to do the work. And I compare it to taking the escalator rather than the stairs. They can write the papers. They can sit down with their books without quite as much effort using these stimulant medications. But the quality of the paper or the score they get on the exam are no better than people who are not using these drugs. Now, the problem with taking the escalator instead of the stairs is that it makes your legs weak. And the problem with using ADHD drugs when you don't really have the illness is that over time, it makes your willpower weak. You feel that more and more you need this potentially dangerous drug in order to do anything. And you just get atrophy of your own natural tenacity. Let's talk about ADHD because you talk about this in the book and you talk about how it's an imbalance of dopamine, essentially. People with ADHD have problems in a number of domains. One domain is that it's hard for them to focus and concentrate. One of the things that control dopamine does 
is it shuts out things that are not relevant to what we're doing. Let me give you a very extreme example. Have you ever been reading something that you were so interested in that somebody in the same room was calling your name and you didn't hear it? Unfortunately, your book over Christmas, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that I feel very proud. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's extreme focus and concentration, and it's very pleasurable, right? It, it means you're really, really interested in something. On the other side of things are people with ADHD. They're sitting in their office um, reading a report. Uh, they hear footsteps outside their door, and all of a sudden, their train of thought is broken. Uh, and, and they forget what it is that they were reading. People with ADHD will read a paragraph three, four times before they get it because every single time something happens that breaks their concentration. So that's one of the problems. Another problem they have is with impulsivity. And this is the same thing. The control circuit is not adequately opposing the desire circuit. In kids, we see them cutting in line. We see them grabbing toys from friends. In adults, we see them um, interrupting other adults who are having conversations. They get an impulse and they act on it. Um, they cannot suppress them because they've got too much dopamine in the desire circuit and not enough dopamine in the control circuit. Having a lot of dopamine in the desire circuit can be a real problem, but there are good things associated with it. One thing is that it makes you very resolute, very motivated, and it can also make you very creative. I had a patient come in who was a successful serial entrepreneur. He had um, started and sold five companies. Um, the last company was, um, was a problem, and he had a lot of stress, and he became depressed. Uh, came in, treatment for his depression, and we also diagnosed ADHD. Um, he was completely incapable of organizing himself. He had to hire guys to keep him on track. He had to hire a guy to carry a cell phone so he wouldn't lose it. Another guy to carry around his address book to make sure he was on time for things. And looking at the big picture, we decided that we were going to treat his depression, but we would not treat his ADHD because we were afraid that if we did that, we would suppress some of his creativity. And that was his livelihood. And it was okay that he was completely disorganized because fortunately he did well enough that he could hire people to essentially act as external dopamine control circuits. And so we left that level of disability because it brought important strengths along with it. I covered a show before on a book called ADHD Nation. The author was Alan Schwartz. He talked about ADHD and he talked about particularly the abuse, so the Adderall and the Ritalin abuse by students. But one of the things I thought about that was, you know, when I do these shows, I try and get both sides of the story. And I, I felt you really did a great job with that in this book. And you talk about the gifts of neuroatypical. They're not disorders. They're actually gifts if you create the right environment for them to be gifts. Yes. And this is it. This is what you're talking about here with ADHD. But I thought it was interesting, just as you mentioned earlier on, the escalator and the stairs the same thing here can happen if a child is medicated young enough and they actually have a need for ADHD medication, you can enable the stairs to work effectively. Yes, that's right. Kids who have ADHD are at higher risk of developing substance use disorders, addictions, because of the impulsivity, 
because it's harder for them to control their behavior. And so as a result of that, early on, doctors and parents were a little bit reluctant to treat them with Ritalin and Adderall because these are potentially addictive medications. And the argument was, maybe we shouldn't give um, amphetamine speed to kids who are very vulnerable to addictions. What they found was absolutely fascinating, in my opinion. They found that the higher the dose of the stimulant and the earlier it was given in the uh, patient's life, the less likely they were to become addicted. And so it turns out that these are very dangerous drugs when they're used recreationally or for some other purpose by people who are healthy. But when they're used properly under a doctor's supervision for genuine ADHD, they have the opposite effect. They reduce the risk of addiction rather than increasing it. Let's move on to madness and creativity. And we've all heard the line, there's a fine line between madness and genius. And as you tell us, both depend on dopamine. And I'm dying to discuss creativity in a little while, but let's start with madness. All right, let's start with madness. Let's go back to the whole idea of reward. What is a reward? A reward is something that has the potential to make your future better, to make your life better. It can be a donut. It can be a glass of Irish whiskey, but it can also be things that are more abstract. So let me give you an example. Let's say that you're sitting at a bus stop, waiting for the bus, reading the newspaper. There are no interesting articles in the paper, and you're reading about some boring trade agreement. You make your way through the article. All of a sudden, you see that one of your classmates from high school is a negotiator. When you see the name of your classmate from high school, you're going to get dopamine. The subjective experience is all of a sudden, you're going to be a whole lot more interested in this article than you were before. And the reason is that now it's personal. And anything that's personal is, in a way, a form of reward. We call that salience. So you keep reading through this article. Now you're more interested. You're excited. All of a sudden, imagine what would happen if you saw your own name in this article. You would get a big boost of dopamine because it would be very personal and would have a big potential to influence your future life. By the way, going back to addiction for one moment, that's why social media is so addictive. You know, it used to be that we'd turn on the TV, watch the networks, and it basically had nothing to do with us. Now, when we turn on the uh, computer, go to Twitter, go to Facebook, go to Instagram, everything is about us. And so it's dopamine hit after dopamine hit, which is very addictive. But you know what? Let's turn it around now. So salience is something that has to do with ourselves, and salient things trigger dopamine, which makes us interested, engaged, and rewarded. But let's turn it around. Let's say that this salient circuit that released dopamine was malfunctioning, and it went off at uh, random, inopportune moments. So you're watching TV, and you're watching the news, and there's a segment about the Secret Service, and bam, your salience dopamine circuit goes off. What's your brain going to tell you? Your brain is going to tell you that it's about you, that there's salience, that the Secret Service is interested in investigating you. And that's the basis of paranoia. And when the uh, dopamine excess is very severe, it can actually lead to delusions. I had a uh, patient once who uh, told me that when he saw a stop sign, he thought it was a sign from his mother telling him to stop thinking about women. 
um, another patient um, called me up and thanked me for the Valentine wishes. Um, she had woken up in the morning, looked out the window, and there was a red car parked across the street. And she realized that was a sign from me expressing my love for her. This really made so much sense because flipping around then, you talked about psychosis and schizophrenia, for example, and how the stories of schizophrenia are always so similar. It's this idea of there's somebody out to get me or there's an implicit plot against me or something like that. But then the meds actually suppress dopamine and then the person has very little motivation to do much or very little motivation to get out of bed in the morning. That's right. You know, we're getting better at this, but the meds we have to treat schizophrenia and other psychotic illnesses are very, very imperfect because we've got excess dopamine in this, in this circuit. And what we want to do is we want to bring it back down to normal levels, but we just don't have that level of fine control. And so what we end up doing is we oversuppress the desire circuit. And so you get people who are just not motivated. Nothing gives them pleasure. They have no interest in doing anything. And we're also suppressing the control circuit. And so they're having problems with planning and carrying out things and reading and thinking abstractly. It's a trade-off. It's a trade-off. If they want to free themselves of these psychotic symptoms, these symptoms of mental illness, they've got to accept this level of disability that the medications themselves bring. Although I should say we're getting better. The new medications are still not perfect. They're still not great, but they're a little bit better than the old medications. Moving on to creativity, you mentioned the importance of mental models and how it's dopamine that helps us build mental models and dopamine that helps break them apart. And both require us to think about things that don't currently exist, which is what dopamine is brilliant to do. That's right. We, we spoke about how the control circuit leads to imagination. If you combine imagination with desire, that is going to prime the pump for creativity. But let's think about what exactly creativity is. Creativity is drawing connections between things that did not previously seem to be connected. So I think that the most famous example of a creative moment is the eureka moment that Archimedes experienced in the bath. Most people are familiar with that. The king wanted him to determine whether a crown was solid gold or filled with some other metal without cutting the crown open. And what he needed to do was measure the density of the crown. He needed to weigh it and calculate its volume. Weighing it was very, very simple, of course. Calculating its volume was tough because it was this irregular shape. And he struggled with this problem for a very long time until one day he got into a bath of water, saw the level of the water rise up, and all of a sudden he realized the amount the water was rising up was exactly equal to what was being displaced by the volume of his body. And he ran around Athens naked, screaming, Eureka. <laughs> so he made a connection between two things that seemed disconnected, measuring volume and stepping into a bath. And dopamine plays a role. And the reason is that we tend to get into ruts. We get into habits. We go through our day seeing the same things over and over again to the point in which we basically stop seeing. We, we stop thinking. We go onto autopilot. But 
when dopamine is triggered by something new, by reward prediction error, let's say that you're walking to work, you're walking the same route you've walked every day for the past three years, and all of a sudden, a new bakery has opened up on the street, and you're going to go in and you're going to get a latte and a croissant. You feel different. You feel more wide awake. You feel more alert. You feel excited. It's no longer the same old, same old. When you see something new, it's an opportunity to reshape the circuits in your brain. It's a learning opportunity. You want to say, all right, the world is a, is a slightly different place than I thought it was. There's now a new bakery or with our evolutionary ancestors. I found a grove of trees that produces fruit that I never knew about before. So what happens is essentially the circuits in your brain loosen up, they soften up, and they're ready to be rewired. They're ready to make new connections that have not been made before. And that's why dopamine drives creativity. And that's why if you want to become a more creative person, one thing you want to do is feed your brain with new experiences. For example, travel, going to the gallery, talking to people you've never spoken to before, trying out new things. These are things that are going to loosen up the habitual circuits of the brain and create the opportunities for new connections. Your book helps me understand myself a little bit more. And I write a weekly article and I put it up on Medium and LinkedIn. And I think in analogies. So an analogy helps me understand usually a complex concept very, very well. And because I interview great people like you every week and varying subjects every week, I make connections between them and often find an analogy that brings something else to life. And I was really fascinated by how analogies have a huge role in creativity. And in fact, some people say that analogies are fundamental to the way that human beings think. We figure things out by comparing them to other things and pulling out the commonalities. One of the things that dopamine does is it allows us to think abstractly. We don't have to have the thing in our hands to understand it. We can understand the essence of it. And it's enormously helpful. Uh, I just saw a patient today who has been taking a lot of bad drugs, and, and she's, she's paying the consequences. And we talked about her brain healing. She was an athlete in college, and we spoke about injuries she experienced on the field, what it was like healing, scaling back her activities a little bit. And I was able to say, healing the brain is the same thing. And that allowed her to establish realistic expectations. Because she's already done them before, so she could find somewhere in her consciousness that a map almost to understand what you were saying. Yeah, she didn't even want to take time off from work to get better because it's like, well, it's just my thoughts. I don't need to worry about changing my thoughts. And I had to explain to her, no, your brain is physical. It's made up of cells, just like the tendons that you injured in your ankle. And that helped her to see it more clearly. That's really interesting because one of the things I found fascinating was Oftentimes, stuff like you mentioned, the pot smoking basement dweller, for example. <laughs> and uh, I thought uh, creative people are often linked with drugs in some way, or, you know, recreational drugs or, for example, pot smoking. And I found it fascinating what you said was because, in a way, what 
for example, cannabis does, is it represses or suppresses dopamine and helps you enjoy the here and now. So that's why you're a bit more like, life is great, man, and that kind of thing, because dopamine is suppressed for a moment. Yes, that's exactly right. It's sort of the opposite of the cocaine addict who's always go, 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 never stay still. The marijuana smoker is like, everything is fine. There's no reason to get up off the couch. And, you know, creative people are notorious for being addicts. You know, poets are alcoholics. Inventors are cocaine addicts. The drugs usually come on the downside of things. Usually when they start off their career, they are highly productive and they do not use drugs because they know that drugs are going to interfere with their ability to execute on their ideas. Um, But then fear sets in. You know, just like you can't control wanting a donut, you can't control a creative idea. You've got to have faith in your brain and patience and wait for it to come. Once people develop a reputation as a creative worker, a lot of times they lose that patience. They say, I'm only as good as my last idea. I need another one right now. And since drugs stimulate dopamine, that can be an appealing short-term solution. But it's exactly the same thing as people using Adderall to study for tests. They're taking the escalator rather than the stairs. And as time goes on, their ability to generate creative ideas spontaneously is going to go down and down. And ultimately, the drugs are no longer going to work and just simply destroy their lives rather than giving them creative ideas. I'll move on so we cover most of the concepts in the book. One of the ones that was fascinating, and you dedicate a whole chapter to this, is the polarization that we're seeing in the world, but particularly at a political level. And here, dopamine can inform us also. You say the fundamental obstacle to achieving harmony is that the liberal brain is different from the conservative brain, and that makes it difficult for them to understand one another. And because politics is an adversarial game, this lack of understanding leads to demonization of the other side. It's a pretty controversial approach. A lot of people didn't like the idea that we were saying that political ideology is at least in part a result of biology, maybe even genetics. But there's evidence for it. The effect on a single individual is probably pretty modest, but the effect on large groups of people is very, very measurable and at times can be dramatic. Liberals tend to be more dopaminergic. They call themselves progressives, and progress is about the future. It's about making things better than they are now. It's about accumulating more things, and that's what dopamine does. Conservatives, on the other hand, tend to be more here and now. Conservative means maintaining the integrity of the good things we have inherited from our forebears, keeping things the way they are now. And we can see that reflected in the policies they tend to support. Progressives support policies that lead to a better tomorrow. They support mandatory education, city planning. They support collecting taxes to give to poor people to make their lives better. Whereas conservatives tend to support things like limiting immigration to keep people out who might change our way of life law and order initiatives. And rather than supporting taxes to help the poor, conservatives are much more likely to personally give to charity 
because that is a relationship-based form of helping rather than a policy-based form of helping. And that's more congenial to a here-and-now personality. You say all this means that government activities are essentially dopaminergic. Pretty much everyone involved in politics is dopaminergic. Otherwise, they couldn't get elected because they're always talking about the future. They're always painting a picture of the future. And I thought it was fascinating looping back dopaminergic individuals you talked earlier on about, you know, hypersexuality, for example, in Washington, D.C., which is the capital of politics probably in the world, AshleyMadison.com say it's the most promiscuous or unfaithful city in the world. It's one of the top three unfaithful cities in the world. Yeah, that's right. Ashley Madison is a website designed for people who are married and want to have an extramarital affair. And they keep track of where people are. And Washington, D.C. has the dubious honor of having the, the most active subscribers to this website. You know, politics is all about command and control from a distance. And that's dopamine. It's about controlling people to determine the future that you want and doing it through power from a distance. And that's a little bit of a problem for conservatives because you're not going to be interested in politics unless you're dopaminergic. You're sure not going to get elected unless you're dopaminergic because it requires so much tenacity, so much sacrifice here and now pleasures, such as spending time with friends and family. During the week, politicians are debating, they're voting, and on the weekends, they've got to go back to their home districts and raise money. And so basically, they get no time off at all. In England, I think the divorce rates among members of parliament is, is double or even more than that of the nation as a whole. Politics is just not a good business to be in unless all you care about is ambition and success and you're willing to sacrifice things like happiness and human relationships. And there's a correlation here as well. You mentioned this in the book. People like Einstein, even thinking about people like Steve Jobs, often these people who are driven to change the world through a vision, a dopaminergic vision, often struggle with interpersonal relationships. Yes, that's right. I think Steve Jobs is a hero of many people, but he was a jerk. From a humanistic point of view, he was terrible. He was almost like a bloodless computing machine. I think in one of the books written about him, we read about terrible treatment of his daughter. People said that he was very, very hard to work with. And many geniuses are like that. I think we quote Einstein saying that I feel an enormous sense of caring for humanity it's individual humans that I can't stand. And that's so dopaminergic. I mean, these people are, they're benefactors of humanity. They care a great deal about people in the abstract, but in the concrete, in the here and now, in the peripersonal space, they simply cannot abide them. So the next part is where you discuss how traits are genetic. And I found this absolutely mind-blowing. You said slight variations in genes are called alleles. Each person's collection of different alleles, along with the environment they grew up in, helps determine their unique personality. One of the variants of the D4 gene is called the 7R. People who have the 7R variant tend to be novelty-seeking. They have less tolerance for monotony and pursue whatever is new or unusual. They can be impulsive, exploratory, fickle, excitable, quick-tempered, and extravagant. On the other hand, 
People with low novelty-seeking personalities are more likely to be reflective, rigid, loyal, stoic, slow-tempered, and frugal. Now, if I needed a segmentation for the audience of this show, the first half probably nails it. This idea of novelty-seeking, wanting to push the boundaries of humanity and understand more, driven by curiosity. And I found this fact that they could be genetic, or they are genetic, absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, you know, genes come in a variety of different, you might call them flavors. So we all have a gene that determines the color of our eyes. But people with brown eyes have a slightly different gene than people with blue eyes, which is different from people with green eyes. And these are called alleles. They're the same genes, but they're slightly different to give us our own individual characteristics. The same is true with genes that control the way your brain produces and processes dopamine. And so there are some alleles that make people more dopaminergic. It's a term we've used, and we can can really get into that right now. And some alleles that make people less dopaminergic. So let's think about what a, a dopaminergic person would look like. Well, they might look like different things depending on which circuit is most active. One thing we can say about all of them, though, and that is that they tend to focus on the future to the exclusion of their present well-being. So if somebody's dopaminergic because they have a very active desire circuit, they may be a hedonist. They may be constantly pleasure-seeking. Wine, women, and song, as the saying goes. They always want to go out to clubs, meet people of the opposite sex, drink alcohol, and then maybe go get a pizza afterwards. Always looking for more and more gratification. Now, somebody else with a dopaminergic personality might be a type A workaholic. Instead of going after more immediate pleasure, he's going after more long-term things and more abstract things, things like money, achievement, honor, and that sort of thing. And then we might look at a third dopaminergic person, and that might be the artist or the inventor. This person is dopaminergic because she is focused on things that don't exist. She wants to bring into the world something that nobody has ever seen before. And she is so obsessed with it that she may not eat, she may not sleep, she may not change her clothes because she is absolutely driven to create this new thing. So if you have alleles that tend to make dopamine more active in your brain, you're going to be future-focused but there's different ways to be future focused. Yeah, and you correlate human exploration from the time we were only 20,000 humans on the planet to the dopamine alleles. Let's share this because I found it fascinating how those who migrated were the adventurous ones. So therefore also likely to be pioneers, to be inventors and start up new businesses when they did get to the new lands, not only for survival's sake, but for dopamine's sake. We human beings are very lucky to be alive. We almost became extinct. The reason that scientists know that is because when you look at the genetic variation from human to human, there's a lot less than you see in other animals. And what that means is that at some point in our history, we dwindled down to a very, very small tribe of people. And so we are all descendants of this small group of people. In order to avoid extinction, one of the best things you can do is spread out. 
That way, if there's a drought or some other natural disaster in one part and that colony is wiped out, you've got people in different parts of the world that can carry on the human race. So leaving Africa and spreading out all over the world was a very important thing for our early ancestors. And it looks like dopamine played an important role. And here's the reason why. When you go out and you travel far enough, the environment changes substantially. The climate may change, the sources of food may change, the sources of shelter may change. And if you've got strong dopamine alleles, you're going to thrive in that environment. You're going to be exploratory. You're going to learn fast. You're always going to go out looking for new sources of reward. And that success is going to mean you're going to have a better chance of surviving. And you're also going to have a better chance of attracting mates and reproducing. And what's fascinating is that if we look along the migration routes out of Africa to the different parts of the world, we see that the longer the migration route, the more generations required to have the ability to survive in novel circumstances, the greater the percentage of the population that have these very active dopamine alleles. I found it really fascinating because you say the United States, for example, has racked up a spectacular dopaminergic achievements between 1901 to 2013. The U.S. has received 42% of all Nobel Prizes awarded, the highest of any country in the world. And it got me thinking big time, because I always suggest young people travel. So I lecture like you do, and I suggest people travel to experience the world because I believe it changes them. But then this got me thinking that actually perhaps that the desire to travel is in you anyway, and it's that chicken and egg problem. Yes, that's right. You know, we're no longer experiencing the kind of migration we experienced or that our evolutionary ancestors experienced, but people still move around the world. And we call that immigration. And if you think about think about it, somebody who's going to immigrate to the United States and that person's neighbor, one of them decides to go, one of them decides to stay. It wouldn't be surprising if we found that the one who decided to go had more active dopamine alleles than perhaps her neighbor who decided to stay. And so over time, the United States has actually become enriched in dopaminergic people. And we see that in a number of different ways. One thing is that we see higher rates of bipolar disorder in the United States, which is an illness that if you have high levels of dopamine, you are at risk for. So that's been bad. But the good thing is that we also see a lot of creativity. The United States is famous for its entrepreneurial culture. And as you pointed out, the United States has received a disproportionate number of Nobel Prizes. And those have been won disproportionately by immigrants. We mentioned Steve Jobs, immigrant, somebody like Jeff Bezos as well from an immigrant family. It's everywhere. And this idea that it could be genetic is just mind-blowing and it's fascinating. And I, and I wonder, is it why it just feels to me that there's an urge in the world today Oh yeah, to create something different that we know that maybe we've exhausted the planet, that we've done untold damage and there's an awakening of sorts across the world. And I wonder, this made me wonder, is it evolution? Is it the mind is waking up and we're getting more dopamine and people are starting to push the boundaries of society because it's starting to break down and this end may be a new beginning? Yes, that's right. It, you know, 
there are problems with having a brain that evolved when uh, we were hunter-gatherers and bringing that into the modern world. And dopamine is one of those problems because when we were hunter-gatherers, we pretty much always lived on the brink of extinction. And so constantly pursuing more, more food, more reproductive partners, more tools, that was essential to our survival. Well, most of us don't live on the brink of extinction anymore, but we're still stuck with this primitive brain. And so we eat more than we should. We shop more than we should. We take drugs in a way that we should not. We've got this primitive brain and it's just consume, consume, consume. And as you point out, we're getting to the point where it may be a threat to the world. We've talked about the many, many challenges and opportunities that dopamine gives us. But you dedicate a section of the book to solutions and small little changes we can make and habits we can hone. And I'd love if you gave us a quick overview of some of those. Sure. Dopamine and the here and now neurotransmitters work in opposition to one another. But that doesn't mean they can't also cooperate. And to use an analogy, I like to think of it as the accelerator and a brake on an automobile. Having these oppositional systems, one makes the car go faster, one makes the car go slower, gives us far more control than if we had an accelerator alone. And we see oppositional systems giving control in many, many areas. And so we've got to learn to use both our here and now neurotransmitters and our dopamine to achieve fulfillment and happiness. So love is, is one example. Dopamine gets things going. It gives us the energy to go out and find someone. It gives us the courage to risk rejection. And then once we get that person, here and now takes over, building a long-term companionate relationship. Creativity is another. I'm not talking about changing the world creativity, but ordinary creativity, such as painting or knitting or woodworking. We use dopamine to give us motivation to plan what it is that we're making, and then we use our actual hands, literally in the peripersonal space, in the here and now, to make it real. These are the kinds of things that give us long-lasting pleasure and satisfaction, but they're dying out. I mean, when I went to high school, we had shop class. We would take time out from our day to work with our hands, to smell the sawdust, to make things that we would keep. That's been phased out because modern society really emphasizes dopamine, working with things that don't exist like bits and bytes and ideas and financial instruments and cryptocurrency and blockchains. And real things are devalued. They're thought of things that people with no education do. People work with their hands or blue-collar workers and we kind of devalue them. That's not a good way to go down. Our brains evolve to have balance, and if we want to get the most out of them, we've got to respect what we've got. I absolutely love the book. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, etc.? book is on Amazon.com. we got lots of great reviews up there, and I've got a website, DanielZLieberman.com. Author of The Molecule of More, How a Single Chemical in Your Brain Drives Love, sex and creativity and will determine the fate of the human race. Daniel Z. Lieberman, MD, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs>